Chapter Seventeen of Sixty Years in Southern California, eighteen fifty three to nineteen thirteen, by Harris Newmark. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Chapter Seventeen Admission to Citizenship, eighteen fifty nine. In eighteen fifty eight, my brother, to whom the greater opportunities of San Francisco had long appealed, decided upon a step that was to affect considerably my own modest affairs. This was to remove permanently to the north with my sister-in-law and in the los angeles star of january twenty second eighteen fifty nine there appeared the following mr joseph p newmark has established a commission house in san francisco with a branch in this city from his experience in business mr newmark will be a most desirable agent for the sale of our domestic produce in the san francisco market and we have no doubt will obtain the confidence of our merchants and shippers this move of my brother's was made as a matter of fact at a time when los angeles in one or two respects at least seemed promising on september thirtieth the building commenced by john temple in the preceding february on the site of the present bullard block was finished most of the upper floor was devoted to a theatre and i am inclined to think that the balance of the building was leased to the city the courtroom being next to the theatre and the ground floor being used as a market to the latter move there was considerable opposition affecting as the expenditures did taxes and the public treasury and one newspaper after a spirited attack on the black republicans concluded its editorial with this patriotic appeal citizens attend to your interests guard your pocketbooks this building is one of the properties to which i refer as sold by hinchman having been bought by dr j s griffin and b d wilson who resold it in time to the county a striking feature of this market building was the town clock whose bell was pronounced fine-toned and sonorous the clock and bell however were destined to share the fate of the rest of the structure which all in all was not very well constructed at last the heavy rains of the early sixties played havoc with the tower and toward the end of eighteen sixty one the clock had set such a pace for itself regardless of the rest of the universe that the newspapers were full of facetious jibes concerning the once serviceable timepiece, and many were the queries as to whether something could not be done to roof the mechanism. The clock, however, remained uncovered until Bullard demolished the building to make room for the present structure. Elsewhere I have referred to the attempt, shortly after I arrived here, or during the session of the legislature of 1854-55, to 55, to divide California into two states, the proposition, be it added, of a San Bernardino County representative. A committee of thirteen from different sections of the Commonwealth later substituted a bill providing for three states, Shasta in the north, California at the middle, Colorado in the south, but nothing evolving as a result of the effort. Our assemblyman, Andres Pico, in 1859 fathered a measure for the segregation of the southern counties under the name of Colorado, when this bill passed both houses and was signed by the governor it had to be submitted to the people however at the election in september eighteen fifty nine and although nearly twenty five hundred ballots were cast in favor of the division as against eight hundred in the negative the movement was afterwards stifled in washington damien marchesol and victor beaudry having enthusiastically organized the santa anita mining company in eighteen fifty eight n h alexander agent at los angeles for wells fargo and company in 1859 announced that the latter had provided scales for weighing gold dust and were prepared to transact a general exchange business 
this was the same firm that had come through the crisis with unimpaired credit when adams and company and many others went to the wall in the great financial crash of eighteen fifty five i have mentioned the mormon colony at san bernardino and its connection as an offshoot with the great mormon city salt lake now i may add that each winter for fifteen or twenty years or until railroad connection was established a lively and growing trade was carried on between los angeles and utah this was because the mormons had no open road toward the outside world except in the direction of southern california for snow covered both the rockies and the sierra nevadas and closed every other highway and trail a number of mormon wagon trains therefore went back and forth every winter over the seven hundred miles or more of fairly level open roadways between salt lake and los angeles taking back not only goods bought here but much that was shipped from san francisco to salt lake via san pedro i remember that in february eighteen fifty nine these mormon wagons arrived by the overland route almost daily the third week in february witnessed one of the most interesting gatherings of rancheros characteristic of southern california life i have ever seen it was a typical rodeo lasting two or three days for the separating and regrouping of cattle and horses and took place at the residence of william workman at la puente rancho strictly speaking the rodeo continued but two days or less for inasmuch as the cattle to be sorted and branded had to be deprived for the time being of their customary nourishment the work was necessarily one of despatch under the direction of a judge of the plains on this occasion the polished cavalier don felipe lugo they were examined parted and branded or rebranded with hot irons impressing a mark generally a letter or odd monogram duly registered at the courthouse and protected by the county recorder's certificate never have i seen finer horsemanship than was there displayed by those whose task it was to pursue the animal and throw the lasso around the head or leg and as often as most of those present had probably seen the feat performed great was their enthusiasm when each vaquero brought down his victim among the guests were most of the rancheros of wealth and note together with their attendants all of whom made up a company ready to enjoy the unlimited hospitality for which the workmen's were so renowned aside from the business in hand of disposing of such an enormous number of mixed-up cattle in so short a time what made the occasion one of keen delight was the remarkable almost astounding ability of the horseman in controlling his animal for lassoing cattle was not his only forte the vaquero of early days was a clever rider and handler of horses particularly the bronco so often erroneously spelled b-r-o-n-c-h-o sometimes a mustang sometimes an indian pony out of a drove that had never been saddled he would lasso one attach a halter to his neck and blindfold him by means of a strap some two or three inches in width fastened to the halter after which he would suddenly mount the bronco and remove the blind when the horse unaccustomed to discipline or restraint would buck and kick for over a quarter of a mile and then stop only because of exhaustion with seldom a mishap however the vaquero almost invariably broke the mustang to the saddle within three or four days this little mexican horse while perhaps not so graceful as his american brother was noted for endurance and he could lope from morning till night if necessary without evidence of serious fatigue speaking of this dexterity i may add that now and then the early californian vaquero gave a good exhibition of his prowess in the town itself runaways due in part to the absence of hitching posts but frequently to carelessness occurred daily and sometimes a clever horseman who happened to be near would pursue 
overtake and lasso the frightened steed before serious harm had been done among the professional classes j lancaster brent was always popular but never more welcomed than on his return from washington on february twenty sixth eighteen fifty nine when he brought the united states patent to the dominguez rancho dated december eighteenth eighteen fifty eight and the first document of land conveyance from the american government to reach california in mercantile circles adolf portugal became somewhat prominent conducting a flourishing business here for a number of years after opening in eighteen fifty four and accumulating before eighteen sixty five about seventy five thousand dollars with this money he then left los angeles and went to europe where he made an extremely unprofitable investment he returned to los angeles and again engaged in mercantile pursuits but he was never able to recover and died a pauper corbett who at one time controlled with dibley great ranch areas near santa barbara and in eighteen fifty nine was in partnership with barker owned the santa anita rancho which he later sold to william wolfskill from los angeles corbett went to oregon where he became i think a leading banker lewis mesmer arrived here in eighteen fifty eight then went to fraser river and there in eight months he made twenty thousand dollars by baking for the hudson bay company's troops a year later he was back in los angeles and on main street somewhere near rakina he started a bakery in time he controlled the local bread trade supplying among others the government troops here in eighteen sixty four mesmer bought out the united states hotel previously run by weber and haas and finally purchased from don juan and padilla the land on which the building stood this property costing three thousand dollars extended one hundred and forty feet on main street and ran through to los angeles on which street it had a frontage of about sixty feet mesmer's son joseph is still living and is active in civic affairs william nordholt a forty-niner was also a resident of los angeles for some time he was a carpenter and worked in partnership with jim barton and when barton was elected sheriff nordholt continued in business for himself at length in eighteen fifty nine he opened a grocery store on the northwest corner of los angeles and first streets which he conducted for many years even in eighteen fifty three when i first knew him nordholt had made a good start and he soon accumulated considerable real estate on first street extending from los angeles to maine he shared his possessions with his spanish wife who attended his grocery but after his death in perhaps the late seventies his children wasted their patrimony notwithstanding the opening of other hotels the bella union continued throughout the fifties to be the representative headquarters of its kind in los angeles and for a wide area around on april nineteenth eighteen fifty six flashner and hamill took hold of the establishment and a couple of years after that dr j b winston who had local hotel experience joined flashner and together they made improvements adding the second story which took five or six months to complete this step forward in the hostelry was duly celebrated on april fourteenth eighteen fifty nine at a dinner the new dining-room being advertised far and wide as one of the finest in all california shortly after this however marcus flashner who owned some thirty-five acres at the corner of maine and washington streets where he managed either a vineyard or an orange orchard met a violent death he used to travel to and from his property in a buggy and one day june twenty ninth eighteen fifty nine his horse ran away throwing him out and killing him in eighteen sixty john king flashner's brother-in-law entered the management of the bella union 
and by 1861 Dr. Winston had sole control. Strolling again in imagination into the old Bella Union of this time, I am reminded of a novel method then employed to call the guests to their meals. When I first came to Los Angeles, the hotel waiter rang a large bell to announce that all was ready. But about the spring of 1859, the fact that another meal had been concocted was signalized by the blowing of a shrill steam whistle placed on the hotel's roof. This brought together both the regulars and transients, everyone scurrying to be first at the dining-room door. About the middle of April, Wells, Fargo, and Company's writer made a fast run between San Pedro and Los Angeles, bringing all the mail matter from the vessels and covering the more than 27 miles of the old roundabout route in less than an hour. The Protestant Church has been represented in Los Angeles since the first service in Mayor Nichols's home and the missionary work of Adam Bland, but it was not until May 4, 1859, that any attempt was made to erect an edifice for the Protestants in the community. Then a committee, including Isaac S. K. Ogier, A. J. King, Columbus Sims, Thomas Foster, William H. Shore, N. A. Potter, J. R. Gitchell, and Henry D. Barrows began to collect funds. Reverend William E. Boardman, an Episcopalian, was invited to take charge, but subscriptions coming in slowly, he conducted services, first in one of the school buildings and then in the courthouse, until 1862 when he left. Despite its growing communications with San Francisco, Los Angeles for years was largely dependent upon sail and steamboat service, and each year the need of a better highway to the north for stages became more and more apparent. Finally, in May 1859, General Ezra Drown was sent as a commissioner to Santa Barbara to discuss the construction of a road to that city, and on his return he declared the project quite practicable. The supervisors had agreed to devote a certain sum of money, and the Santa Barbarinos, on their part, were to vote on the proposition of appropriating $15,000 for the work. Evidently, the citizens voted favorably, for in July of the following year, James Thompson of Los Angeles contracted for making the new road through Santa Barbara County from the Los Angeles to the San Luis Obispo lines passed through Ventura, or San Buenaventura, as it was then more poetically called, Santa Barbara and out by the Gaviota Pass, all in all a distance of about 125 miles. Some five or six months were required to finish the rough work, and over $30,000 was expended for that alone. Winfield Scott Hancock, whom I came to know well and who had been here before, arrived in Los Angeles in May 1859 to establish a depot for the quartermaster's department which he finally located at Wilmington, naming it Drum Barracks after Adjutant General Richard Coulter Drum, for several years at the head of the Department of the West. Hancock himself was quartermaster and had an office in a brick building on Main Street near 3rd, and he was in charge of all government property here and at Yuma, Arizona Territory, then a military post. He thus both bought and sold, advertising at one time, for example, a call for three or four hundred thousand pounds of barley, and again offering for sale on behalf of poor Uncle Sam the important item of a lone braying mule. Hancock invested liberally in California projects and became interested with others in the Bear Valley mines, and at length had the good luck to strike a rich and paying vein of gold quartz. Beaudry and Marchassault were among the first handlers of ice in Los Angeles, having an ice house in 1859, where in the springtime they stored the frozen product taken from the mountain lakes fifty miles away. 
the ice was cut into cubes of about one hundred pounds each packed down the canyons by a train of thirty to forty mules and then brought in wagons to los angeles by september eighteen sixty wagon loads of san bernardino ice or perhaps one would better say compact snow were hawked about town and bought up by saloon keepers and others having been transported in the way i have just described a good seventy-five miles later ice was shipped here from san francisco and soon after it reached town the saloons displayed signs soliciting orders considering the present popularity of the silver dollar along the entire western coast it may be interesting to recall the stamping of these coins for the first time in california at the san francisco mint this was in the spring of eighteen fifty nine soon after which they began to appear in los angeles a few years later in eighteen sixty three and for ten or fifteen years thereafter silver half-dimes coined in san francisco were to be seen here occasionally but they were never popular the larger silver piece the dime was more common although for a while it also had little purchasing power as late as the early seventies it was not welcome and many a time i have seen dimes thrown into the street as if they were worthless this prejudice against the smaller silver coins was much the same as the feeling which even today obtains with many people on the coast against the copper cent when the nickel in the eighties came into use the old californian tradition as to coinage began to disappear and this opened the way for the introduction of the one cent piece which is more and more coming into popular favor in the year eighteen fifty nine the hellman brothers isaias w and herman w arrived here in a sailing vessel with captain morton i w hellman took a clerkship with his cousin i m hellman who had arrived in eighteen fifty four and was establishing in the stationary line in mellis's row while h w hellman went to work in june eighteen fifty nine for phineas banning at wilmington i w hellman immediately showed much ability and greatly improved his cousin's business by eighteen sixty five he was in trade for himself selling dry goods at the corner of main and commercial streets as the successor to a portugal while h w hellman father of marco h hellman the banker and father-in-law of the public-spirited citizen lewis m cole became my competitor as will be shown later in the wholesale grocery business john philbin an irishman arrived here penniless late in the fifties but with my assistance started a small store at fort tejon then a military post necessary for the preservation of order on the indian reservation and there during the short space of eighteen months he accumulated twenty thousand dollars illness compelled him to leave and i bought his business and property after completing this purchase i engaged a clerk in san francisco to manage the new branch as john philman had been very popular the new clerk also called himself john and soon enjoyed equal favor it was only when bob wilson came into town one day from the fort and told me that chap john is gambling your whole damned business away he plays seven up at twenty dollars a game and when out of cash puts up blocks of merchandise that i investigated and discharged him sending caspar cone who had recently arrived from europe to take his place it was in eighteen fifty nine or a year before abraham lincoln was elected president that i bought out philbin and at the breaking out of the war the troops were withdrawn from fort tejon thus ending my activity there as a merchant we disposed of the stock as best we could but the building which had cost three thousand dollars brought at forced sale just fifty 
Fort Tejon, established about 1854, I may add, after it attained some fame as the only military post in Southern California where snow ever fell, and also as the scene of the earthquake phenomena I have described, was abandoned altogether as a military station on September 11, 1864. Philbin removed to Los Angeles, where he invested in some fifty acres of vineyard along San Pedro Street, extending as far south as the present Pico and I still have a clear impression of the typical old adobe there, so badly damaged by the rains of 1890. Caspar remained in my employ until he set up in business at Red Bluff, Tahama County, where he continued until January 1866. In more recent years he has come to occupy an enviable position as a successful financier. Somewhat less than six years after my arrival, or, to be accurate, on the 15th day of August, 1859, about the time of my mother's death at Lebeau, and satisfying one of my most ardent ambitions, I entered the family of Uncle Sam, carrying from the district court here a red sealed document to me of great importance, my newly acquired citizenship being attested by Charles R. Johnson, clerk, and John O. Wheeler, deputy. On September 3rd, the Los Angeles Star made the following announcement and salutation called to the bar at the present term of the district court for the first judicial district mr m j newmark was called to the bar we congratulate mr newmark on his success and wish him a brilliant career in his profession this kindly reference was to my brother-in-law who had read law in the office of e j c kewen then on main street opposite the belly union and had there in the preceding january when already eleven attorneys were practicing there hung out his shingle as notary public and conveyancer, an office to which he was reappointed by the governor in 1860, soon after he had been made commissioner for the state of Missouri to reside in Los Angeles. About that same time he began to take a lively interest in politics, being elected on October 13, 1860, a delegate to the Democratic County Convention. A.J. King was also admitted to the bar toward the end of that year. We who have such praise for the rapid growth of the population in Los Angeles must not forget the faithful midwives of early days, when there was not the least indication that there would ever be a lying-in hospital here. First, one naturally recalls old Mrs. Simmons, the Sarah Gamp of the fifties, while her professional sister of the sixties was Lydia Rebick, whose name also will be pleasantly spoken by old-timers. A brother of Mrs. Rebick was James H. Whitworth, a rancher, who came to Los Angeles County in 1857. Residents of Los Angeles today have but a faint idea, I suppose, of what exertion we cheerfully submitted to, forty or fifty years ago, in order to participate in a little pleasure. This was shown at an outing in 1859, on and by the sea, made possible through the courtesy of my hospitable friend Phineas Banning, details of which illustrate the social conditions then prevailing here. Banning had invited fifty or sixty ladies and gentlemen to accompany him to Catalina, and at about half-past five o'clock on a June morning the guests arrived at Banning's residence, where they partook of refreshments. Then they started in decorated stages for New San Pedro, where the host, who, by the way, was a man of most genial temperament, fond of a joke, and sure to infuse others with his good-heartedness, regaled his friends with a hearty breakfast, not forgetting anything likely to both warm and cheer. After ample justice had been done to this feature, the picnickers boarded Banning's little steamer Comet and made for the outer harbor. There they were transferred to the United States Coast Survey Ship Active, which steamed away so spiritedly that in two hours the passengers were off Catalina, 
nothing meanwhile having been left undone to promote the comfort of everyone aboard the vessel during this time captain alder and his officers resplendent in their naval uniforms held a reception and unwilling that the merrymakers should be exposed without provisions to the wilds of the less trodden island they set before them a substantial ship's dinner once ashore the visitors strolled along the beach and across that part of the island then most familiar and at four o'clock the members of the party were again walking the decks of the government vessel steaming back slowly san pedro was reached after sundown and having again been bundled into the stages the excursionists were back in los angeles about ten o'clock i have said that most of the early political meetings took place at the residence of don ignacio de valle i recall however a mass meeting and a barbecue in august eighteen fifty nine in a grove at el monte owned by innkeeper thompson benches were provided for the ladies prompting the editor of the star to observe with characteristic gallantry that the seats were fully occupied by an array of beauty such as no other portion of the state ever witnessed on september eleventh eberhard and cole opened the lafayette hotel on main street on the site opposite the belle union where once had stood the residence of don eluio de Celis. Particular inducements to families desiring quiet and the attraction of a table supplied with the choicest viands and delicacies of the season were duly advertised. But the proprietors met with only a moderate response. On January 1, 1862, Eberhard withdrew, and Frederick W. Cole took into partnership Henry Dockweiler, father of two of our very prominent young men, J. H. Dockweiler, the civil engineer, and in 1889, city surveyor, and isidore b dockweiler the attorney and chris fleur in two years dockweiler had withdrawn leaving fleur as sole proprietor and he continued as such until in the seventies he took charles gerson in partnership with him it is my recollection in fact that fleur was associated with this hotel in one capacity or another until its name was changed first to the cosmopolitan and then to the st elmo various influences contributed to causing radical social changes particularly throughout the county when dr john s griffin and other pioneers came here they were astonished at the hospitality of the ranch owners who provided for them however numerous shelter food and even fresh saddle horses and this bounteous provision for the wayfarer continued until the migrating population had so increased as to become something of a burden and economic conditions put a break on unlimited entertainment then a slight reaction set in and by the sixties a movement to demand some compensation for such service began to make itself felt in eighteen fifty nine don vicente de la osa advertised that he would afford accommodation for travelers by way of his ranch el encino but that to protect himself he must consider it an essential part of the arrangement that visitors should act on the good old rule and pay as one goes in eighteen fifty nine c h clausen a native of germany opened a cigar factory in the signorette building on main street north of arcadia and believing that tobacco could be successfully grown in los angeles county he sent to cuba for some seed and was soon making cigars from the local product i fancy that the plants degenerated because although others experimented with los angeles tobacco the growing of the leaf here was abandoned after a few years h newmark and company handled much tobacco for sheep wash and so came to buy the last southern california crop when i speak of sheep wash i refer to a solution made by steeping tobacco in water and used to cure a skin disease known as scab 
it was always applied after shearing for then wool could not be affected and the process was easier talking of tobacco i may say that the commercial cigarette now for sale everywhere was not then to be seen people rolled their own cigarettes generally using brown paper but sometimes the white which came in reams of sheets about six by ten inches in size which came in reams of sheets about six by ten inches in size kentucky leaf was most in vogue and the first brand of granulated tobacco that i remember was known as sultana clay pipes then packed in barrels were used a good deal more than now and briar pipes much less there was no duty on imported cigars and their consequent cheapness brought them into general consumptions there was no duty on imported cigars and their consequent cheapness brought them into general consumption practically all of the native female population smoked cigarettes for it was a custom of the country but the american ladies did not indulge while spending an enjoyable hour at the county museum recently i noticed a cigarette case of finely woven matting that had once belonged to antonio maria lugo and a bundle of cigarettes rolled up like so many matches by andres pico and both the little cigarillos and the holder will give a fair understanding of these customs of the past besides the use of tobacco in cigar and cigarette form and for pipes there was much consumption of the weed by chewers peach brand a black plug saturated with molasses and packed in caddies a term more commonly applied to little boxes for tea was the favorite chewing tobacco fifty years or more ago it would hardly be an exaggeration to say that nine out of ten americans in los angeles indulged in this habit some of whom certainly exposed us to the criticism of charles dickens and others who found so much fault with our manners the pernicious activity of rough or troublesome characters brings to recollection an aged indian named polonia whom pioneers will easily recollect as having been bereft of his sight by his own people because of his unnatural ferocity he was six foot four inches in height and had once been endowed with great physical strength he was clad for the most part in a tattered blanket so that his mere appearance was sufficient to impress if not to intimidate the observer only recently in fact mrs solomon lazard told me that to her and her girl playmates polonia and his fierce countenance were the terror of their lives he may thus have deserved to forfeit his life for many crimes but the idea of cutting a man's eyes out for any offence whatever no matter how great is revolting in the extreme the year i arrived and for some time thereafter polonia slept by night in the corridor of don manuel raquina's house with the aid of only a very long stick this blind indian was able to find his way all over the town Sometime in 1859, Daniel Sexton, a veteran of the battles of San Bartolo and the Mesa, became possessed of the idea that gold was secreted in large sacks near the ruins of San Juan Capistrano, and, getting permission, he burrowed so far beneath the house of a citizen that the latter, fearing his whole home was likely to cave in, frantically begged the gold digger to desist sexton in fact came near digging his own grave instead of another's and was for a while the good-natured butt of many a pun jacob a morenhout a native of antwerp belgium who had been french consul for a couple of years at monterey in the later days of the mexican regime removed to los angeles on october twenty ninth eighteen fifty nine on which occasion the consular flag of france was raised at his residence in this city as early as january thirteenth eighteen thirty five president andrew jackson had appointed morenhout 
u s consul to the otaheite and the rest of the society islands the original consular document with its quaint spelling and signed by the vigorous pen of that president existing today in a collection owned by dr e m clinton of los angeles and the belgian had thus so profited by experience in promoting trade and amicable relations between foreign nations that he was prepared to make himself persona grata here salvos of cannon were fired while the french citizens accompanied by a band formed in procession and marched to the plaza in the afternoon don louis sansevain in honor of the event set a groaning and luxurious table for a goodly company at his hospitable residence their patriotic toasts were gracefully proposed and as gracefully responded to the festivities continued until the small hours of the morning after which consul morinhout was declared a duly initiated angeleno surrounded by most of his family don juan bandini a distinguished southern californian and a worthy member of one of the finest spanish families here after a long and painful illness died at the home of his daughter and son-in-law doña arcadia and don abel Stearns in los angeles on november fourth eighteen fifty nine don juan had come to california far back in the early twenties and to los angeles so soon thereafter that he was a familiar and welcome figure here many years before i arrived it is natural that i should look back with pleasure and satisfaction to my association with a gentleman so typically californian warm-hearted genial and social in the extreme and one who dispensed so large and generous a hospitality he came with his father who eventually died here and was buried at the old san gabriel mission and at one time possessed the jerupa rancho where he lived don juan was a lawyer by profession and had written the best part of a history of early california the manuscript of which went to the state university the passing glimpse of bandini in sunlight and in shadow recorded by dana in his classic two years before the mast adds to the fame already enjoyed by this native californian himself of a good-sized family don juan married twice his first wife courted in eighteen twenty three was dolores daughter of captain jose estudillo a comandante at monterey and of that union were born doña arcadia first the wife of abel stearns and later of colonel r s baker doña isadora who married lieutenant cave j Couts, a cousin of general grant doña josefa later the wife of pedro c carrillo father of j j carrillo formerly marshal here and now justice of the peace at santa monica and the sons jose maria bandini and juanito bandini don juan's second wife was refugio a daughter of santiago arguello and a granddaughter of the governor who made the first grants of land to rancheros of los angeles she it was who nursed the wounded kearney and who became a friend of lieutenant william t sherman once a guest in her home and she was also the mother of doña dolores later the wife of charles r johnson and of doña margarita whom dr james b winston married after his rollicking bachelor days by bandini's second marriage there were three sons juan de la cruz bandini alfredo bandini and arturo bandini the financial depression of eighteen fifty nine affected the temperament of citizens so much that little or no attention was paid to holidays with the one exception perhaps of the bella union's poorly patronized christmas dinner and during eighteen sixty many small concerns closed their doors altogether i've spoken to the fact that brick was not much used when i first came to los angeles and have shown how it soon after became more popular as a building material this was emphasized during eighteen fifty nine when thirty-one brick buildings such as they were were put up 
in december benjamin hayes then district judge and holding court in the dingy old adobe at the corner of spring and franklin streets ordered the sheriff to secure and furnish another place and despite the fact that there was only a depleted treasury to meet the new outlay of five or six thousand dollars few persons attempted to deny the necessity the fact of the matter was that when it rained water actually poured through the ceiling and ran down the courtroom walls splattering all over the judge's desk to such an extent that umbrellas might very conveniently have been brought into use all of which led to the limit of human patience if not of human endurance in 1859 one of the first efforts toward the formation of a public library was made when felix bachman meyer j newmark william h workman sam foy h s allinson and others organized a library association with john temple as president j j warner vice president francis mellis treasurer and israel fleischman secretary the association established a reading room in don abel stearns's arcadia block an immediate and important acquisition was the collection of books that had been assembled by henry mellis for his own home other citizens contributed books periodicals and money and the messengers of the overland mail undertook to get such eastern newspapers as they could for the perusal of the library members five dollars was charged as an initiation fee and a dollar for monthly dues but insignificant as was the expense the undertaking was not well patronized by the public and the project to the regret of many had to be abandoned this effort to establish a library recalls an angeleno of the fifties ralph emerson a cousin i believe though somewhat distantly removed of the famous concord philosopher he lived on the west side of alameda street in an adobe known as emerson's row between first and aliso streets where miss mary e hoyt assisted by her mother had a school and where at one time emerson a strong competitor of mine in the hide business had his office fire destroyed part of their home late in 1859 and again in the following september emerson served as a director on the library board both he and his wife being among the most refined and attractive people of the neighborhood it must have been late in november that miss hoyt announced the opening of her school at number two emerson row in doing which she followed a custom in vogue with private schools at that time and published the endorsements of leading citizens or patrons Again in 1861, Miss Hoyt advertised to give instruction in the higher branches of English education with French drawing and ornamental needlework for $5 a month, while $3 was asked for the teaching of the common branches and needlework, and only $2 for teaching the elementary courses. Miss Hoyt's move was probably due to the inability of the Board of Education to secure an appropriation with which to pay the public school teachers. This lack of means led not only to a general discussion of the problem, but to the recommendation that Los Angeles schools be graded and a high school started. Following a dry year and especially a fearful heat wave in October, which suddenly ran the mercury up to 110 degrees, December witnessed heavy rains in the mountains inundating both valleys and towns. On the 4th of December, the most disastrous rain known in the history of the Southland set in, precipitating within a single day and night twelve inches of water and causing the rise of the san gabriel and other rivers to a height never before recorded and such a cataclysm that sand and debris was scattered far and wide lean and weakened from the ravaging drought through which they had just passed the poor cattle now exposed to the elements of cold rain and wind fell in vast numbers in their tracks the bed of the los angeles river was shifted for perhaps a quarter of a mile many houses in town were cracked and otherwise damaged and some caved in altogether the front of the old church attacked through a leaking roof disintegrated swayed and finally gave way filling the neighborhood street with impassable heaps 
I've spoken of the market house built by John Temple for the city. On December 29th, there was a sale of the stalls by Mayor D. Marchesault, and all except six booths were disposed of, each for the term of three months. $173 was the rental agreed upon, and Dodson and Company bid successfully for nine out of thirteen of the stalls. By the following month, however, complaints were made in the press that though the city fathers had condescended to let the suffering public have another market, they still prevented the free competition desired, and by the end of August it was openly charged that the manner in which the city market was conducted showed a gross piece of favoritism, and that the city treasury on this account would suffer a monthly loss of $100 in rents alone. About 1859, John Murat, following in the wake of Henry Kuhn, proprietor of the New York Brewery, established the Gambrinus in the block bounded by Los Angeles, San Pedro, and First, and what has become Second Streets. The brewery, notwithstanding its spacious yard, was anything but an extensive institution, and the quality of the product dispensed to the public left much to be desired. But it was beer, and Murat has the distinction of having been one of the first Los Angeles brewers the new york's spigot a suggestive souvenir of those convivial days picked up by george w hazard now enriches a local museum these reminiscences recall still another brewer christian henny at whose popular resort on main street on the last evening of eighteen fifty nine following some conferences in the old round house thirty-eight los angeles germans met and formed an association which they called the teutonia concordia the object was to promote social intercourse, especially among Germans, and to further the study of German song. C. H. Clausen was chosen first president, H. Hamel vice president, H. Heinz secretary, and Lorenzo Leck treasurer. How great were the problems confronting the national government in the development of our continent may be gathered from the strenuous efforts and the results to encourage an overland mail route. $600,000 a year was the subsidy granted the Butterfield Company for running two mail coaches each way a week, yet the postal revenue for the first year was but $27,000, leaving a deficit more than half a million. But this was not all that was discouraging. Politicians attacked the stage route administration, and then the newspapers had to come to the rescue and point out the advantages as compared with the ocean routes. Indians also were an obstacle, and with the arrival of every stage one expected to hear the sensational story of ambushing and murder, rather than the yarn of a monotonous trip. When new reports of such outrages were brought in, new outcries were raised and new petitions, calling on the government for protection, were hurriedly circulated. End of chapter 17